The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. If your ultimate aim is to nurture a democracy and an opposition, a viable parliamentary opposition in Iraq, then why are you looking at Muqtada Sadr when you can be looking at this grassroots, organic set of leaders and candidates who emerged from a protest movement, who are rooted in the Iraqi people and who managed against all odds to secure, to secure seats in parliament? Why isn't the investment in this small group of individuals who don't want to destabilize the system, but to work within it to fix it? And these individuals aren't going to last forever. Pretty soon, they'll also realize that, you know, there's all these forces against them and that they can't do much and they might be demotivated to continue. And what was so jarring to me is that this rhetoric of support for civil society, for these new parties, for educating them, for providing them with resources and that on one hand. And on the other hand, basically pushing for a candidate that you know is going to stand against everything these sets of parliamentarians and these sets of civil society activists stand for. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for September 2nd, 2022. In recent months, the country of Iraq has been living through the latest in a series of political crises, as different factions have struggled for control of its governing institutions. Earlier this week, that tension broke out into the open as rioters occupied government office buildings and militias associated with other factions responded with violence. To learn more, I sat down with Marcin Al-Shamari, a research fellow with the Middle East Initiative at the Harvard Kennedy School. We discussed the players involved in this latest crisis, what's led to this point, and where their conflict might go next. It's the Lawfare Podcast for September 2nd. Marcin Al-Shamari on Iraq's latest political crisis. So Marcin... Those of us who try to follow happenings in Iraq and the broader Middle East have seen pretty dramatic scenes unfold on the ground in Baghdad, really over the last several weeks, but particularly in the last 24, 48 hours, in which we have seen a military operation, soldiers of various types, although in many cases, uh, militia members, not necessarily full, regular security units engaged in exchanges of fire with large groups of protesters, protesters who have entered into the green zone, which is a purportedly secure area that contains many government buildings uh, and embassies, including the U.S. embassy, who had forced their way in to some extent, stopped a variety of operations government, engaged in their own uh, hostile activity and exchange of hostilities. And it's not just limited to Baghdad. We've also heard reports, particularly throughout the south of Iraq, about similar sorts of struggles and conflicts going on. Tell us a little bit about who is actually engaging these actions. What have we seen play out in the ground over the last few days? And who are the different actors we're dealing with in terms of this scope of activity? I'll start this story with the October 2021 elections, which were early elections that emerged as a result of the protest movement that called for a new electoral law and a change in the government. And these early elections were held under a lot of international support and supervision. Uh, The results came out and the process of government formation began in late October. By August, we had hit 10 months without a government being formed. We surpassed the other records of government formation that we had. And the main holdup was that the winners of the election, the group that had won the most seats, the Sudrists, They'd won 73 seats in parliament, and despite this not being the highest number anyone has ever won in parliament historically, they decided that they wanted to create a government of majority, 
rather than a government of consensus. Iraq has always had a government of consensus in which all the political parties from various ethno-religious groups would come together and agree on different candidates for different positions. But this time, Muqtada Sadr, who is the leader of the Sadrist group, uh, someone who's characterized as both a cleric and a populist and a social movement leader, uh, he was adamant that he create a majority in parliament, along with allies from the Kurds and from the Sunnis, while sidelining his longtime nemesis, former Prime Minister Nur al-Maliki, and his allies, who called themselves the coordination framework. So really, you have two actors. You have Muqtada Sadr on one hand, and you have the coordination framework on another hand. And their first real point of contention was this majority government versus consensus government that they couldn't agree on. Now, the Kurds and the Sunnis, particularly the KDP, the biggest Kurdish party, they were on Sadr's side in terms of wanting a majority government, but they weren't a part of the broader debate and the broader intra-Shia crisis that was happening. So really, it is Sadr who is the main actor here. When he fails to form this majority government, when every attempt of his is derailed, he threatens to pull all 73 MPs out of parliament. And no one thinks he will, by the way. And he surprises everyone, including myself, by actually pulling them out. There's this moment of uncertainty where everyone's like, oh, will he bring them back in? Will something happen? Will they? Will the coordination framework say, oh, no, we'll reach out to him, we'll mediate, we'll, we'll come together? But no, instead, they are, there are 73 new MPs sworn in, and the entire setup of parliament, the entire power of the parliament shifts towards the coordination framework um, with no more sadrists. And Muqtada basically hints that if he's not going to get the government he wants through the mechanisms, uh, through the electoral mechanisms and the political mechanisms that were available to him, he would seek other means to do so. And he kept on this promise. Because once the coordination framework decided that they had a candidate to nominate for the premiership, Muhammad Shia Sudani, Muqtada Sadr immediately sent his followers to the green zone, the heavily fortified zone where many embassies and the Iraqi government offices are, and had them basically storm the green zone and reach parliament. And at the time, he was saying that he was contesting the nomination of Sudani. But everyone knew that it was bigger than just that. And then the calls started escalating for you know, more demands. The Sadras said that they wanted an early election. They wanted the change in the electoral system. They were unhappy with the entire political system. They were unhappy with the corruption. There was a lot of anti-Iranian tones suggesting that the coordination framework was in Iran's pocket and that the Sadras were the nationalists who were against Iranian intervention and control of Iraq. And this was all a moment of peace, despite, you know, the very strong rhetoric. I mean, I was in Baghdad at the time, and we were all very worried that this would turn violent very easily because everyone in Iraq is armed. And absolutely, the paramilitary groups are even more armed than they ever were because of what was left over from the war with ISIS. So everyone was concerned this would devolve. There was a lot of um, calls for mediation and resolution through dialogue from many of Iraq's key politicians, including members of the coordination framework, including Prime Minister uh, Mustafa al-Kalami. But nevertheless, we reached a point where we feared that there would be violence through counter-protests overnight. And I remember the night I left Baghdad, I left worrying that there would be a civil war, just because I worried that there would be an accident that would spur this anger amongst the followers of different groups. But then the situation really escalated a few days ago when there was a statement from Ha'iri, Ayatollah Ha'iri, who is a spiritual leader in Iran, who is Iraqi and who is the spiritual guide for many Sadrists, particularly the generation that followed Muqtada's father um, and Muqtada Sadr himself. So to really explain Shia political power, I will have to explain why Muqtada is different than his father and why he is different than someone like Grand Ayatollah Sistani, like Khomeini, for example. Uh, within the Shia clerical hierarchy, you have to reach a certain level of learning to be able to be a spiritual guide uh, to followers. So people can choose to follow you, but you are actually capable of issuing fatwas and telling people how to practice, whether you know they're 
their religious obligations, their social obligations, and some even believe that they can give them their political obligations, which leads to the whole issue of uh, theocracy and Shiism. But Muqtada Sadr hasn't reached that level. But his father had reached that level. And so when his father passed away, he had been a leader in terms of being both a leader of a social movement and of being a spiritual guide for the very same followers. Muqtada couldn't fill both of these roles because he wasn't qualified to do so. So he filled the role of being the leader of the social movement, the Sadrist movement. But Ha'ari, who was a student of his father's, was able to fill the spiritual guide void. And so he served that role for years. And he had an on-and-off relationship with Muqtada. Sometimes it got very difficult between them. But he nevertheless remained important for Muqtada Sadr, and he remained important for the older generation of Sadras. But he wasn't that important for a younger generation of Sadras who you know, were born after 2003, who don't really care about uh, clerical authority in the same way an older generation did. So why this is important is that Ha'ari issued a statement a few days ago saying, first, he no longer wanted the responsibility of being a spiritual guide for anyone, and that he wanted to direct his followers to follow instead Khamenei, the supreme leader of Iran. And this is really startling for a lot of people with knowledge of the Shia religious establishment, because clerics don't leave their positions and tell someone to, you know, go find someone else to follow. That rarely happens. If it doesn't happen at all. And his reasons are health reasons and old age. But nearly every cleric of that position is older and has health issues, including Grand Ayatollah Sistani. So it wasn't a compelling reason. But then in the statement, he goes on to say that he criticizes and condemns those who pretend to be leaders, um, who use the name of the Sadr family and they aren't true Sadrists and they're sowing havoc and discord among the Shia of Iraq. And it is very clear that he means Muqtada Sadr. And it is a damning statement from someone so close to his father who he considers a spiritual guide. And I think he was very shocked to receive it. So he almost immediately responds on Twitter. Muqtada Sadr responds. And he makes it explicit that he is responding because of Ha'ari's statement. And he says that he will leave politics and that he knows that he is not a high-ranking cleric, but that he's just doing his job as a Muslim in terms of promoting good and prohibiting evil. Basically, he says, I'm just doing what's right. I'm not uh, pretending to be a religious leader of the same caliber as my father or my uncle. And that statement also suggested to everyone that Muqtada Sadr was stepping back from responsibility for anything that happened because of his followers because he says, I'm no longer involved in politics. I think his anger was very clear, and I think it propelled his followers on the ground to turn to violence. And so things immediately got very violent in the green zone. They went to the Republican palace. There were videos of the Sadras swimming in the pool. This, you know, immediately residents of Baghdad started to hear gunshots. And as the night went on, there were more fights between the Sadras and the members of the paramilitary groups that are part of the coordination framework. And so there were these, what you can really call battles, happening in certain areas of Baghdad, in some popular neighborhoods um, in the Green Zone, as well in southern Iraq. And things got very scary for the residents of Baghdad overnight. The next day, by 1 p.m. Baghdad time, Muqtada Sadr has a press conference where he chastises his followers, tells them that their movement shouldn't be violent, tells them that they will have to stop within 60 minutes or else, and he leaves that blank. And he apologizes profusely to the Iraqi people for causing them such a terrifying night. Um, he says that his head is lowered, he's embarrassed. We haven't seen Muqtada look this defeated uh, and honestly, I do wonder what this will do to his followers, seeing him look so embarrassed, so defeated. And that really is up to, you know, August 31st, where we are recording today. That's basically what has happened in Iraq. That is such an incredible overview of this rapid sequence of events. That, that, that was so useful. So thank you for that. And as you noted, you know, a central figure in this series of events is Muqtada al-Sadr, he's probably one of the most prominent political figures in Iraq, uh, certainly in kind of the post-U.S. invasion era. Tell us a little bit about 
more about who this man is and the role he and his movement have come to play in Iraq in the last few years. I suspect most American listeners are going to be think of Muqtada al-Sadr in the context of the U.S. occupation of Iraq, in which militia groups associated with him were involved in a number of hostile incidents, a number of attacks and hostile engagements to U.S. soldiers, killing U.S. soldiers, some kidnappings, assorted other sort of events, and naturally position him as a kind of a, a, one of a variety of oppositional forces in Iraq. And that may be an accurate description of certainly the role he played at the time, but Iraqi politics have are much more complicated than that. And he's got his own very unique role he's kind of carved out for himself, for him and his movement uh, in the broader terrain of Iraqi politics and particularly Shia politics. Tell us more about that. Where did this man come from and, and what role is he playing today? So one thought I have about Muqtada Sadr that really begins it all is that the first, everyone has heard of Muqtada Sadr from 2003, but one of the first references to him by political elite of any sort, I found in the Ba'ath government archives at the Hoover Institute in Stanford. And this kind of gives you an idea of his of his real background, um, of what he was doing before 2003. So the Ba'ath government, the government that led Iraq before 2003, kept these extensive archives of everything they were up to, including their monitoring. Um, and then these archives were later taken to the United States, and they were available to researchers for a while at Stanford. But at some point when I was doing research on my dissertation, I went to Stanford to see these archives and I found, and I was very interested in how the state viewed religious leaders. And I found this document about how Muqtada Sadr was being very closely surveilled by the Iraqi government prior to 2003 because he was responsible for the publication of religious materials that offended the state. And of course, the state was obsessed with his father, um, who they allowed to speak um, in public and to gather these, you know, thousand person um, gatherings for his Friday sermons, which, you know, they would criticize him for every little thing he would do. And they kept a very close eye on him. But Muqtada Sadr comes from a family that was scrutinized by the Iraqi state. And that was under, you know, various times under house arrest, imprisoned for various reasons. Many members left the country. Iraq in the 80s and in the 90s, despite the um, religious uh, revival that Saddam Hussein tried to do, was one in which clerics were just not comfortable, particularly Shia clerics. And this really distinguishes Muqtada from a lot of the other Shia opposition in Iraq. So Muqtada lived through all of this. He felt that he had you know, fought the fight in Iraq. He lived through the worst of authoritarianism. He didn't ever leave. His father was killed. You know, all these things happened to him, but he stayed and he inherited a movement and he was part of this entire entire class of clerics who lived under deep authoritarianism. Whereas many of his rivals, the ones on the coordination framework, were individuals who had left Iraq after being persecuted by the state, but who had, in his view, lost touch with the Iraqi people because of their lives abroad. This is really the thing that Muqtada says separates him from everyone else. He understands the Iraqi people. These other guys, they were imported and they did a terrible job. And this is a sentiment that a lot of other Iraqis will express about the members of the coordination framework. That being said, Muqtada Sadr is not someone who is not complicit in the post-2003 Iraqi state and who is not complicit in atrocious acts of violence. And I think people tend to forget this. He was one of the first people to rally uh, Shia insurgency after 2003 when the U.S. came in. I'm sure, I mean, I won't bore this audience with the details because I think everyone who knows Muqtada Sadr in the American audience remembers uh, his role in multiple battles and how he fought the U.S. Uh, occupation of Iraq. As someone whose family is from Karbala personally, I remember uh, how much damage he caused the city in 2007. And, you know, the people in Karbala to this day still feel very wary of Muqtada Sadr and his followers. Um, many people view them as being unruly and chaotic, uh, you know, bringing violence wherever they are. Many times they're likened to a cult, even by everyday Iraqis. And of course, I think the, the worst crime Muqtada Sadr has committed is that he he moved sectarian violence to a dangerous degree in the mid-2000s during Iraq's sectarian civil war that was particularly strong in Baghdad. 
And in Baghdad, his followers were known to have these death squads um, using ambulances from the Ministry of Health, which they which they controlled, in order to entice Sunni civilians into these cars and then kill them and then dump their bodies into the Tigris. It was a brutal and disgusting level of violence that he was complicit in. And you know, afterwards, he dissolved his paramilitary group at the time, Jaysh al-Mahdi, he, he revived it for ISIS uh, to fight the ISIS war. He left politics briefly, but always returned before elections. And over the years, he restyled himself from someone who was a, you know, a Shia militia leader, essentially, to a nationalist politician. And I think he was just riding the wave of public opinion. He knew Iraqis were tired of, of Iranian intervention in the country and wanted to see sovereignty. And he restyled himself as that kind of leader, ran in the elections as that kind of leader, and controlled a lot of the Iraqi government. I mean, everyone who follows the, the details of Iraqi politics knows that for years, the Sadrists controlled the Ministry of Health, for example. And the Ministry of Health is notoriously corrupt and terrible at providing services. And yet Muqtada Sadr's own followers from these impoverished neighborhoods in Baghdad will get on TV, you know, this month and say, we demand a state that isn't corrupt and that doesn't have these horrible public services like health care. We want better health care. And it's so jarring to hear this when everyone knows that he and his party controlled the health ministry. And so he's been part of this state. For years now, he runs in elections and he participates and upholds the system. But suddenly he decided that he wants to be the really the head of the Shia in Iraq. He doesn't want to share power with the other Shia political parties in Iraq. And his pursuit of this goal is wrapped cleverly in this pursuit of nationalism and sovereignty. And it's frightening to me how many people are willing to believe this and to forget his past. So... That's a phenomenal overview of the role that uh, Sadr has come to play, this kind of nationalist angle that's a bit of a departure from a lot of the other dominant Shia trend that we see now kind of brought together under this coordination framework. That coordination framework, of course, is itself as an or, under that name somewhat new, uh, but reflects kind of a broader trend about Shia coordination uh, and organization. And it involves a lot of figures that I think will be familiar names for anybody who's been following Iraqi politics for the last few years. So tell us a little bit about the coordination framework on the other side of this most recent conflict. Who are the big players there and what is their agenda and and how have they approached this conflict with Sadr, particularly around this question of the Council of Representatives, the composition of it? I know there's a big Supreme Court decision that played a role there. What is their role in the construction of both the Iraqi state and this most recent crisis? Excellent question. I mean, it's necessary that we introduce the other side of the story. And I'll start by saying that when I look at Iraqi politics, there's just no good guys. There's no good options. Pretty much every political figure in Iraq has baggage, um, has violence in their past, has corruption in their past. And it really creates a lot of pessimism around the future. And the coordination framework is honestly the biggest example of that. So, I mean, their name is new, but they've always existed. They're essentially the members of the other Shia political parties, everyone except Muqtada Sadr. Everyone associates them with Nur al-Maliki, the former prime minister of Iraq, most famously the prime minister under which Musul fell to ISIS. And the other members of the coordination framework are Hadi al-Amri, who is the leader of the Better Organization, you know, an organization that is... No one is under any illusion that they are not closely allied with Iran. But it also contains figures that actually aren't traditionally allied to Iran. And to me, it's always puzzling why everyone just simplifies the the fight between the coordination framework as Sadr as being pro and anti-Iran, when I think it's much more complicated than that. And by that, I mean you have figures like former Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi, who was someone very close to Washington and to the West generally, and very well liked by them, as well as someone like Ammar al-Hakim, who is actually from a clerical family, but also has strong ties to Washington and isn't seen as a natural nemesis uh, to the West um, in many ways that you know a lot of clerics are seen immediately uh, before they're given an opportunity to really express their political inclinations. And so these are the figures who 
who populate the coordination framework. There's obviously a lot more, including a lot of leaders of paramilitary groups that are also uh, allied with Iran, whether formally or informally. And they they came together really as a force to be able to bargain when they were doing government formation um, and to work on this broad consensus government so that they could push forward their candidates. And really, they are defined in opposition to Muqtada Sadr. But what's really interesting about their relationship with Muqtada Sadr is that in the very early days of government formation, Muqtada Sadr was willing to make overtures to pretty much any member of the coordination framework except for Nur al-Maliki. He even made uh, attempts to get Hadil Amri to join him, which is very interesting because Hadil Amri is a very pro-Iran figure, which is why I think this relationship is much more complicated than than people let on usually. And I understand the need for simplicity when there's so many ties uh, joining these different parties. But I think that needs to be clarified since we're having an in-depth discussion of what's going on in Iraq here. So the coordination framework, you know, they individually, some of them did better than they than we would predict uh, in the elections. For example, Nur al-Maliki made a comeback. Uh, he got a lot of seats in parliament, a lot more than people expected. But, for example, Haider al-Abadi and Ammar al-Hakim, who made a coalition together, didn't get many seats in parliament, or actually seemed to have, um, I think together, before the Sadrist resigned, they had four seats, and then that number shot up to maybe like 11 or 12. I don't have the exact figure off the top of my head. But they were not electorally very powerful. And and Fatah, which is the you know electoral party that ran with members of Badr, uh, so Hadi al-Amri and the paramilitary groups of the Popular Mobilization Forces, their political party, did pretty bad in the elections. And they were very unhappy with the election results and, in fact, actually contested them and asked for a new election almost immediately after the results came out, which is very interesting because now there's talks of a snap election in Iraq. So these are the the various figures that populate the coordination framework. I mean, the people who voted for them are not everyday Iraqis who are making a decision based on who they think will run the country well. Their number of votes depends on their patronage networks. So when an average Iraqi who is not really, you know, enmeshed in a patronage network of some sort went out to vote in October, the options were pretty bad, with the exception of there being some new new candidates who emerged from the protest movement and some independent candidates. But these are the guys that have always run Iraqi politics from the start. They have a history of their own corruption and ineptitude, and they have some bad blood with Muqtada Sadr. Now, of course, I don't want to get too into the weeds about how exactly the the pivot about around the Council of Representatives came about. Um, but I do think it's an important context here because there was this kind of institutional and kind of legal and a constitutional question as well, as I recall, that I believe the Supreme Court ended up weighing in on around that fed into this calculus about the struggle between the Sadrists and the coordination framework. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because that seems to be one of the precipitating events that eventually led up to this crisis. This is a really important question because the court's rulings are really the basis in which Muqtada felt that he was being alienated and attacked by the other parties in Iraq. But actually, it has a lot more to do with his Kurdish allies than with his uh, Sunni allies or with his other allies. So we have to go back to the moment in which he decided he wanted a majority government. And in order to get that majority government, the first step was that they would elect in parliament a speaker of parliament from the Sadrists. And that happened successfully. Hamid al-Halbusi, who is a Sunni leader who is allied with the Sadrists, became speaker of parliament for the second time. Uh, that actually happened pretty quickly, and people were like, oh, maybe this will be a faster process of government formation than we thought. But then everything stalled with the presidency. So in Iraq, the president is usually a Kurd, and there are two main Kurdish parties that contest the presidency. It's the KDP, which is a larger party, and the PUK, which is a smaller party but still very powerful. And traditionally, the PUK gets a presidency in exchange for the KDP holding more power in the actual semi-autonomous region of Kurdistan. And in this case, Sadr was allied with the KDP and they wanted the presidency this time. But 
before that they could hold a parliamentary session to vote for their presidency, there was an interpretation that was requested from the court about what is needed for a president to be elected. And what's interesting is that this was requested by President Barham Saleh, who is from the PUK and who hopes to be president again. And what he asks is, what is a quorum needed to elect a president? Traditionally, by parliamentary law, you only need 50 plus one to have quorum in parliament. But the court said that because in order to elect a president, you need two thirds of MPs to elect him, that it doesn't make sense for quorum to be less than two thirds. So they said that quorum for the parliamentary session for election of president has to be two thirds, which is a lot more than Sadr could actually get. And that was the first time that there was an issue with the court ruling. And that was where things really started to unravel and to get ugly in this relationship. The second also concerns the presidency. It's the KDP's candidate, Hoshiar Zibari, uh, who was a former minister of finance that was complicit in corruption cases. But he wasn't the only minister that had been voted out of government. But someone also requested a court ruling on whether he was fit to be president. And it was determined that he was not fit to be president because of um, existing court rulings against him and because of his uh, performance as minister of finance. And so not only was Sadr not even allowed to hold the session he thought he could hold to get his allies the presidency, but also his allies candidate was someone who was very quickly uh, considered not fit to be president. And he felt like these two ins- instances were uh, were going against him and were particularly maneuverings by the coordination framework who had ties to the court and who was able to do to do this. Now, to be honest, with regards to the parliamentary quorum required, I agree with the court. It doesn't make sense to not have two-thirds of MPs present in an election that requires a two-third vote. But with the second case, I find it hypocritical because there are many other instances of of ministers who were voted out of their office for many reasons and who were able to continue running for office or to get different positions later on. So I, I can see why he would be upset with the second decision. But I think the first one is, I mean, you know, I always say I'm no constitutional expert, but it seems pretty rational to me that you would need that kind of um, quorum and able to have a vote like that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers, and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report, and it includes 15 more data brokers, 
with my personal information. 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. So all these developments, this kind of power struggle to some extent is, is taking place against the backdrop of the Iraqi institutions of government. You know, we have Prime Minister Khanimi in, in place, who's been in place for a little while now, but never had a strong hand, was always kind of a compromised candidate, now kind of in a caretaker sort of role. And, and then, of course, you have the Iraqi security forces that have been in this kind of precarious position with the various armed groups that appear to be most squarely engaged in this sort of fighting. We've seen the prime minister come out now that the tension in the green zone appears to have alleviated, at least at least for the moment. Again, we're recording midday uh, East Coast time on, on Wednesday, the 31st. So that might change by the time this comes out. You know, he's promising consequences for people who took unlawful action, which which sounds like there's a lot of people on both sides in the green zone, other parts of Baghdad and and, and other parts of the country. How do they fit into this picture? I mean, to what extent is there an independent Iraqi state apparatus that is kind of a counterweight between these sorts of factions or represents a different sort of set of interests? And how have they interfaced with these true groups over the course of this power struggle? The Iraqi state is very weak and held hostage to these many powerful and armed actors. And I think what we saw in the last few days is really a testament to that. Uh, Prime Minister Mustafa al-Kadhimi he is hindered by the fact that he doesn't have a strong parliamentary backing and that he was chosen as a compromise candidate in a consensus government. And actually, the Sadrists had a lot to do with him being chosen. So you always, you know, see that he is not on formally, you know, publicly good terms or is considered a Sadrist, but he is a prime minister that is friendly to the Sadrists and that they have, uh, for the most part, protected and supported. And the reason these kinds of prime ministers have started to appear in Iraq is because we've moved on from prime ministers who have run in elections and who come with a strong parliamentary backing because their their political party won so much seats that they're able to push to push them and support them, getting a premiership, to a consensus system in which 
the only the only person that kind of appeases everyone though doesn't please everyone is someone who doesn't really have a clear side behind them and that means it's someone who doesn't have a paramilitary group behind them and at the end of the day of course they're commander of the armed forces and they have the weight of the iraqi state but the weight of that state is always drained by the presence of other actors that are armed and have allies and have external relations and who have interests to protect in the country. And so Mustafa al-Kadhimi is a very weak Iraqi prime minister. But what's been truly most disappointing about Mustafa al-Kadhimi is that he came in as an interim prime minister, uh, meaning that despite this weakness, he technically didn't have anything to lose. And he came in with this big agenda that included, you know, you mentioned him saying that there's going to be retribution for all those who perpetrated violence. But he said the same thing when he came on the, you know, on the ends of the protest movement and said that he would find justice for all those who were killed and find all the perpetrators of violence and make sure that they were properly tried. None of that has happened, of course. And he's frequently you know, made moves against paramilitary groups only to back away. Uh, there has been many embarrassing instances in which the state looked weak because it tried to do something about these groups and they very quickly, you know, retaliated or showed their strength. And his half-hearted attempts at confronting armed groups in Iraq and their, his failure in doing so have really weakened the state. I mean, he is definitely in a very tough position because he, you know, like I said, he doesn't have parliamentary backing. He doesn't have a clear political party backing him. And so he tried to be neutral during this entire debacle. But, you know, I do wonder why is it so easy for the Sadras to enter the green zone? It happened, you know, almost instantaneously when months of protesters couldn't reach the green zone. There must be this decision at the top of the Iraqi state in which they just don't want to confront or anger or get in the way of these actors. And I think that's what's happened. Muqtada Sadr praised Kadhimi and he praised members of the Iraqi security forces for remaining neutral. During his press conference, Mustafa Kadhimi praised Muqtada Sadr for de-escalating. I think, you know, everyone's just going around patting everyone else on the back and that doesn't bode well for the promise to actually seek justice and retribution. So you've mentioned a number of times this protest movement. And, you know, I think we we, we actually did podcasts on this as, as it was in its kind of like strongest heyday, maybe arguably before in the early stage of the pandemic. And it's kind of been a recurring, resurging uh, phenomenon. In some way, it ties back to something that's been happening for years in regards to periods of unrest, but really taking on a new character in the last few years of a protest movement that is consciously critical of corruption, of a lot of ways, the kind of status quo in the state of Iraq, critical of kind of being beholden to a variety of outside interests, uh, United States and Iran included in that, although most seems to have come most pointedly into conflict at various times um, with Iran. We have reports about, you know, Iran-backed militias, or at least groups widely suspected of being backed with Iran, engaging in violence against protesters uh, at various times, uh, independent of, of kind of the state. Tell us how that protest movement has kind of evolved into this. Is that something that's been subsumed by the satirist kind of uh, anti-corruption bent? The satirists still really kind of independent. They're still a broader kind of, especially notable for Iraq, very cross-sectarian identity protest movement. Is that kind of social force still in the background, independent of this power struggle among these different Shia factions? And how is it likely to, to impact the kind of outcome? I'm really glad you identified the importance of the protest movement and what's happening in Iraq now, because Muqtada Sadr really tried hard to make the Sadrist protests that we saw this month a nationwide protests that were similar to the October protest movements. He really tried hard to get everyday Iraqis involved in this, and there were multiple mechanisms that he tried to do this. So, for example, the first most blatant attempt at really creating a broader movement than just a Sadrist movement was him taking advantage of it being the religious holiday, um, the commemoration of the death of Imam Hussein, who, in Shiaism, is a figure of anti-political oppression. So you can't think of a better, you know, better commemoration than his than the day in which he is, you know, 
essentially killed by corrupt political authority hundreds of years ago to rally people against a corrupt political system. And he really pushed this message hard. He called it the Ashura revolution. He was very explicit about using these religious symbols to get everyday Shia Iraqis involved. And he wasn't successful in doing so. And there's many reasons for this, including the fact that, you know, the average Iraqi is very wary of the Sadrists and it won't be easy for them to join. The reason they're wary of the Sadrists is, you know, because of the past that I talked about, all these instances of violence throughout Baghdad and the South. But there is also the more recent experience of the protest movement with the Sadrists, which was a very ugly relationship at one point. So in 2019, when the October protest movement started, it was at that time um, grassroots organic movement that even civil society didn't expect to, you know, mushroom into the size that it ended up being where, you know, thousands of people joining and being sustained for months was really something no one was expecting. But a lot of the numbers that made the protest movement look very big and that moved it forward, especially in that that early winter period, that late fall period of 2019 and early 2020, was the the Sudrists joining the movement. And the Sudrists at some point, however, turned against the protest movement. Muqtada Sadr praised the protest movement, then he condemned the protest movement. So the protesters from October 2019 know that the Sadrists can't be trusted. They know that they'll turn against them. They know that they might use them, manipulate them, um, bandwagon with them only so far as to get what they want and then leave. And so there is there is a lot of doubt around whether to trust a Sadrist-started protest movement amongst everyday Iraqis. And that's why I think Sadr's attempts to get the rest of the Iraqi population, and he was very explicit. He says, I call upon everyday Iraqis. I call upon members of the armed forces. He even calls upon members of the paramilitary, of the of the popular mobilization forces, various paramilitary groups, and explicitly says, I'm calling on the members who I don't hold accountable for for any of the behaviors of their leaders. Um, and he tries to make this a, a big movement, but fails to do so. And it's because of this, because of this bad blood um, between them and the other reasons that I mentioned. The other thing that really deserves being mentioned, if you'll allow me, is that Sadr also in, in this movement called for early elections. Before, you know, all of this violence unfolded, he wanted uh, early elections in Iraq under a new law. And, you know, the protest movement had worked very hard to get a new electoral law to get these early elections in October. And he's coming and he's saying that he wants other ones. I think from my perspective as someone who analyzes Iraqi elections, another election is really a blow to the protest parties who actually managed to gain some seats in parliament in the 2019 election. Specifically, some independent candidates and the Imtidad party were able to amass a sizable number of seats amongst themselves. And their seats actually grew when the Sadrists resigned from parliament. And they were able to get this number of seats because they were campaigning on the hype and the mobilization of the protest movement. People were excited about the potential for change, and they were able to capture this and translate it into seats. Another early election really spells the death of these groups because they want to be able to mobilize people. Iraqis are already apt to boycott the elections, and they'll be even more tempted to do so if there is another early election following an early election and it was called on because of a political leader. It just it really doesn't bode well for the reputation of democracy in Iraq, in my opinion. And so there, you know, the interests of the protest movement, the civil society activists, and the interests of the Sadrists do not align, despite Muqtada Sadr desperately wishing they would. So the other actor, as we flesh out this picture to understand what's been happening these last couple of days and, and the last few weeks, that hanging in the background all of this in ways where it may actually be there and in some ways as a bit of a, a boogeyman that might be, whose presence may be being invoked in ways that may or may not be accurate, is Iran. You know, Iranian influence in Iraq has always been a reality, and certainly for, for 
decades as a, a neighbor, a uh, country with a close related history, lots of cultural religious connections. Um, that's something that's kind of unavoidable. Um, but part has been a particularly point of concern basically since the end of the counter-ISIS campaign where you saw this mass mobilization of these militia movements, many of which, although not all of which, have strong ties to Iran, to the IRGC, uh, and have exercised, as you've already described, a strong counterweight, strong independent influence, independent of the actual state apparatus. Tell us a little bit about where Iran is coming out in all of this, how it's been, how it's actually been intersecting and playing out. You've already kind of muddied the picture a bit, I think, in a way that's very useful, making the point that the, you know, Sadrists, point painting Sadrists as the anti-Iranians and um, the coordination framework as pro-Iranians is too simple. But what is the right way to think about Iran's role in all of this? And is the fact that Sadr is now stepping down, um, that a religious figure that has strong influence over him is now directing people to follow Khamenei, uh, who, of course, is a major figure in Iran, and Iranian politics, to say the least. Does that signal a little bit of a triumph of Iran in this inter-Shia struggle? Or are there still many chapters yet to play out? You know, it wouldn't be a conversation about Iraq if we didn't talk about Iran specifically um, when it comes to Shia politics. But I think, you know, the starting point for talking about Iran and Iraq is, like you said, to recognize that this is almost an inevitable relationship, given how close the countries are geographically, but also historically, the kind of cultural cross-pollination between them, all these ties that bring the countries together. But people frequently think that this is an issue of the affinity of the Arab Shia to Iranians. But you know, Iran actually has strong ties to a lot of other political parties in Iraq. I mean, it has very strong ties to the PUK, for example. And so Iran has played the long game um, in Iraq. It has nurtured relationships with politicians. It has supported them. And it has been able to extend its influence over the years, which many Iraqis view as being very pernicious influence in the country. Because Iran's ultimate goal in Iraq is to see a Shia-led, stable but weak country. And its policies have been directed at ensuring that happens. While the whole Muqtada Sadr coordination framework fiasco is unraveling, you know, while we were talking about civil war, there were two factors that people thought would prevent a Shia-Shia civil war from occurring. The first being the intervention of Grand Ayatollah Sistani, who wouldn't want to see that and who would work to de-escalate it. And the second being that Iran wouldn't want to see Shia-Shia violence in Iraq, not because of any ideological dislike for violence against other Shia, but really it's rationally Iran doesn't want the Shia parties in Iraq to lose their grasp on the country. And it will work in any way to preserve the weak status quo uh, that we currently have in Iraq. You know, I usually don't make comments about where I think Iran intervenes in Iraq because I think there's a lot of rumors circulating and there's a lot of murkiness in, in the relationship. But one thing that has that I have been thinking about a lot in the last three days is that letter that Ha'iri sent to Muqtada Sadr. And like I said, I normally don't make these kinds of comments, but to me that letter read a lot like being influenced by the Iraqi government. As someone who studied the Shia religious establishment for, you know, for years now, I find it so strange that a cleric would suddenly decide that they no longer wanted their office and couldn't manage it. It's just, you know, and the timing of that was so strange to me as well. The direction of the followers to go towards Khamenei when there were tens of candidates available, both in Qom, who did not have any political inclinations. They're like unpoliticized clerics in Iran. And there's also plenty of clerics in Iraq. There's also the option of not giving an alternative at all. And so to me, that seemed to smell of Iranian interference. In addition to the strong condemnation of Sadr, there's a lot of talk about what happened overnight. There was a night in which we were worried we would wake up and we would find our country amidst a civil war. And then the next day, Muqtada Sadr appeared and was apologetic. And there's a lot of talk about, is this Iranian intervention you know, by one means or another? This is all unclear. Things will crystallize in the next few days or weeks. I'm sure we'll get to know more about what happened, what mediation took place. But I wouldn't be surprised if it was a combination of the factors that I gave you of it being um, Iran's unwillingness to see a Shia civil war and Grand Ayatollah Sistani's unwillingness to see a Shia civil war for vastly different reasons. But nevertheless, they would pursue this. So this is really where Iran stands, you know, this week. 
One thing I will note is that both the United States and Iran have been less involved in the last Iraqi elections than in previous ones, which I think is a good thing because it allows Iraqis to resolve their issues on their own. But I do think a lot of the, um, the tension around the Iranian nuclear talks is reflected in Iraq when the United States and Iran are distracted by the potential to arrive at um, an agreement, things in Iraq are, you know, Iraqi sovereignty increases essentially. And when they, when their talks fall apart, um, then they resort to the proxy battlefield that is Iraq. And, you know, many analysts over the years, Iraqi ones have, you know, begged and pleaded for U.S. foreign policy to look at Iraq without looking at Iran. But that's, you know, I think that's just wishful thinking. And I've been one of those people, but I think it's nearly impossible to address Iraqi politics from the perspective of the U.S. or the perspective of the Western world without thinking about how this affects the relationship with Iran. So that actually tees up perfectly my next question for you. Which is the question of the United States? You know, we we are a podcast that covers a lot of global events. We try and capture a variety of perspectives, but the majority of our listeners are American, uh, unconcerned about U.S. policy towards things. I and other law firm contributors are former U.S. policymakers and dealing with Iraq in particular, and so have a, have a personal interest in this. So, so I will ask you, you know, what do you make of how the United States and other countries uh, uh, in the world as well have engaged with these sort of interactions in Iraq? As far as I can tell, really, you know, the United States has played a somewhat like careful role in last year's, particularly the Biden administration. We saw the Trump administration take a number of provocative actions in regards to uh, Iran-backed militias in Iraq, a lot of military action. We've seen the Biden administration do occasional uh, strikes of its own, but a much lower tempo, uh, a little more targeted variety, both in Iraq and in Syria, although primarily in Syria, but has played a more calculated role in terms of very much trumpeting the fact that it's ending the U.S. combat mission in Iraq, although U.S. troops remain in Iraq, provi- providing training and serving other roles. And in regards to this kind of inter-Shia debate, seeming to not play a super active role, leaning one way or the other, kind of encouraging the state apparatus to stand up for itself, uh, to try and maybe in small ways, uh, try and push back against the unlawful or kind of extra governmental influence of different militia groups and factions, but still maintaining ties of communication and contact with various groups within the coordination framework, some of whom they've had very productive relationships with in the past, you know, the Hyder al-Abadi, other mother folks, Nari al-Maliki, although the relationship soured at a certain point, certainly was a, a close contact with the United States for many years. And then the Sadrists, even though there's a little bit of a common interest, arguably, in terms of there's at least the Sadrists are playing off that kind of anti-Iran sentiment that the Americans also play into, they have a very messy history because Sadr is the face of a very violent uh, armed movement that killed a lot of U.S. soldiers. Uh, and I think that really hinders their engagement, complicated even further by the fact that Sadr himself is very kind of historically has been extremely hostile to Americans uh, as much as Iranians. So how has the United States kind of put itself into this struggle? How effective do you think that's been insofar as there is anything it can be to do be effective one way or the other? You know, what what would you advise if you had the ear of U.S. policymakers? One of the repercussions of the 2003 war that we don't talk about a lot is that it signaled to Iraqis, all Iraqis, everyday Iraqis and the elites, that whenever they had a problem, the superpower would jump in and intervene and fix it for them or try to fix it for them. And this mentality has stayed with Iraq and I think has been a hindrance in Iraq for the last 20 years. And I think Biden's abrupt um, withdrawal from Afghanistan, the harrowing images that we saw, had an impact on dampening this a little bit, but not enough. I still see rhetoric in Iraq about what will the U.S. do? Will the U.S. just, you know, come in and just get these actors to get themselves together and to stop, uh, you know, bringing us into violence and stop bringing the country nearly to civil war? And there's this expectation of international involvement and international investment in Iraq, whether it's the US, the EU, the United Nations mission in Iraq. And you can see this, by the way, even in the rhetoric of Muqtada Sadr, for example, when he calls on UNAMI to mediate a dialogue between him and the members of the coordination framework earlier on in this in this saga. And, you know, later he mentions UNAMI in a different tweet. So 
there is this feeling that Iraq is so important that everyone is going to jump in and intervene when things go bad. And I think that feeling gives this long-term sense of security that shouldn't be there. And that prevents Iraqis from taking ownership of their own problem and their own country in a way that's destabilizing for us. And it's very hard for me to say this genuinely because Iraqis had no say in what the United States did in 2003, but this is one of the long-term repercussions of that that's still very harmful. And I've always been a proponent of you know, letting Iraq figure out its problems by itself. And that's essentially the line of foreign policy I always advise. Um, but there is leaving a country to manage its own affairs also includes not intervening sporadically or weighing in sporadically in one way or another, that kind of derails uh, this pursuit of independence that we're seeking. And by that, I mean, if you look, I, I won't mention any names, but if you look at the rhetoric of Western diplomats generally in Baghdad, and you know, I've been living in Baghdad for a while and I've had various interactions, there is this desperate desire to find this anti-Iranian figure in Muqtada al-Sadr that seems to erase all other logic, including not only the past that you mentioned when you were asking me this question, but also including that if your ultimate aim is to nurture a democracy and an opposition, a viable parliamentary opposition in Iraq, then why are you looking at Muqtada al-Sadr when you can be looking at this grassroots, organic set of leaders and candidates who emerge from a protest movement who are rooted in the Iraqi people and who managed against all odds to secure, to secure seats in parliament. Why isn't the investment in this small group of individuals who have made it and who believe in reform and who don't want to destabilize the system, but to work within it to fix it? And these individuals aren't going to last forever. Pretty soon, they'll also realize that, you know, there's all these forces against them and that they can't do much and they might be demotivated to continue. And what was so jarring to me um, during my time in Iraq is that this rhetoric of support for civil society, for these new parties, for educating them, for providing them with the resources and, you know, you can't get too involved in supporting a political party. Of course, it's electoral intervention. But that on one hand, and on the other hand, basically pushing against really your better judgment for a candidate that you know is going to stand against everything these sets of parliamentarians and these sets of civil society activists stand for. And, you know, when I speak to various policymakers about this, one point I really want to push is honestly playing the long game in Iraq. This includes a focus on supporting educational reform in Iraq, um, supporting civil society in Iraq. And these aren't going to be immediate payoffs, but I think they're the only means to the long-term development of the country. There's so much work that needs to be done in the country. I mean, we always tell our very rosy story around the October protest movement, you know? We say that there's these youth who hated sectarianism and hated corruption and wanted to create a new system in Iraq. But that story is only partially true. And the reason it's only partially true is because Iraq as a society has suffered under years of improper and poor education, not enough resources and not enough engagement with the political arena so that even those who rise in politics are not as equipped as we wish they would be to be able to seriously bring about reform. So there are all these these areas of Iraqi society that could benefit a lot from, you know, cultural and uh, knowledge resources. But instead, everyone is really just fixating on, will Muqtada al-Sadr, you know, actually be able to put down these paramilitary groups and to be a force against Iran? And we've just seen him apologize to the Iraqi public and withdraw. So I think any investment in someone who we know has been complicit in a corrupt government and who has been complicit in violence is just a delusion. 
And I understand completely, by the way, how difficult it is to invest in civil society, how difficult it is to invest in the long term. And, you know, I've spoken to well, those who work for the international community and those within the U.S. government who work on supporting and promoting civil society. And it's not an easy job because there's a lot of a lot of work needed to figure out who has political alliances that are secret, for example, or anything like that. But to me, it just felt very jarring that they were ignoring a potential group that actually represented the Iraqi street in favor of someone who had a very bloody history, both from the perspective of Americans and Iraqis. So one last question for you, Marcin, before before we part um, and end our conversation. You know, we are at a moment now where it seems like the most immediate crisis, the, the armed engagements that were happening in the green zone, other parts of the country, appear to have ceased, at least to have wound down in part because of Sadr's directive to his followers to, to step back. We don't really know whether that will hold or not. Um, and, I, and I don't want to ask you to predict anything because I think it's a hard situation to predict. But what are, I guess, the markers? What should we as observers be looking for in the coming days and weeks that might suggest what comes next? What would you be looking for in particular from the different sides suggesting a possible resolution to this crisis? Or, or is it just too up in the air to really be able to pin down even that level of detail at this point? One thing that I've been really paying attention to is the degree to which the coordination framework will proceed without antagonizing Sadr. They need to treat this not as though they have won, but as though they've reached a consensus and that they are going to take into account what Sadr wanted before he said he wanted to step down from politics. I think if they proceeded to form a government with the existing parliament, they're going to provoke him further. So the signs of provoking Sadr are something to look out for, um, particularly from the coordination framework. And the other thing to pay attention to is if there is a snap election, what is the rhetoric of the Sadrists who ran previously to the election? Does it seem like they're going to come back? Are they going to come back under a banner or are they going to come back individually? So everyone expects Muqtada Sadr to come back to politics. I don't think I've met anyone who actually believes this is a long-term withdrawal. But really, those are the two things that I would be keeping an eye on. Well, we will have to leave the conversation there for now. Marcina Shamari, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak with you today. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And check out Lawfare's other podcasts, including Rational Security, a casual conversation about national security news that I co-host each week with my colleagues, Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein. Also, be sure to visit lawfareblog.com for extensive written coverage of national security law and policy issues, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare to gain access to an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts, among other perks. This podcast was edited by Jen Patcha Howell, and our audio engineer was Ian and Wright of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.